Good. Uh, my name is Derek. I'm the pastor here. If you just walked in, and this is called the sermon. Are you ready? Okay. Um, this slide is cool. It was on when you came in, just a quote from a book. I, I love the book. It's blue like jazz. Uh, mine's pretty ripped up. I've gone through it a few times, but I love what he says. He says, before I lived in community, I thought faith, mine being the Christian faith, was something that a person did alone. How many of you have felt this way before? Nobody. Okay. Um, well, I'll just be honest with you. When I was in high school, I would go to youth group, and I just thought that church was a place that you went to learn how to go do it alone. That the moral life and the life that God desires is something that happened away from groups, away from people, away from this. And so I just wanted to put that up there for us. When you came in, it was up. It's up now. But uh, just to keep in mind that the complete opposite is the truth, that God desires us to connect with people, to be in community. The word fellowship in the Bible, koinonia, is the word that means fellowship. Uh, life is done in groups in the Bible, and faith is lived out in community in the Scriptures for sure. There are times, and we talked about this last week, when faith needs to be alone. There are times when we pray we need to be alone. There are times when uh, we're just in secret with our thoughts and our motives. But by and large, the Bible calls us in the community. Uh, think about the Lord's Prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It's really an example prayer that Jesus gave. But think about it. It's prayed in the plural. Our Father, give us, we, us, our. It's all in the plural. It's done in groups. And so we've been talking about this. We're doing a series called Come Together. Next slide. If you have a Bible, Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, if you've got a house Bible, that's the page number uh, for you. If you brought your own, you're on your own. But in Hebrews chapter 10, we've been sitting here for a few weeks in the series called Come Together. And it's, the series is based on this little phrase that's in some of our materials. It kind of goes out to connect group leaders. Um, and it goes like this, that faith... Your faith, my faith, is worked out best in conversation. And when I, and when I say that, and, when we, and what we mean by that is it's worked out, it's put on the anvil best when you're in conversation. Because in conversation, you can go to someone and say, I'm having a hard time with this, I doubt this, or I'm struggling with this, or I'm not quite so sure what God wants me to do with this that I'm reading or that I'm going through. And in conversations with people, we begin to hear wisdom or uh, I've been there before or experience or knowledge or even just more scripture that we didn't know was there. So faith, when we come out of those times alone with God, is best, it grows legs best in conversation. Does this make sense? It just, to me, it makes total sense that if I have a question about my faith, if I have a question about something that I'm going through, I don't ask myself that. I mean, for a while I do, but at some point I need to get people around me that uh, can help. So we've been talking about that, and the passage in Hebrews 10 is pretty famous. I mean, the, the most famous part is verse 25 where it says, let us not give up meeting together, and I'm going to teach about that next week. And last week we did verse 23, which has to do with uh, hope and faith, and it says, let us hold unswervingly <clears throat> to the hope that we profess. So there's this sense of the word unswervingly, by the way, is the word to fight. Let us fight together for our faith because at times it's, it's tough. Faith is not easy. But 
this passage that we've been looking at is just a small look into this larger, and just picture it this way with me, just this sweeping arc in the Scriptures, which is this, that God from the very beginning made all things interdependent. Everything relies on something, (coughs) and we're no exception to that. Look at this verse on the screen from Genesis all the way back at the beginning of the story. It is not good for man to be what? Alone. And you're probably tired of this verse if you've been around here, because we use it all the time. But this is God looking at man that he created, which, by the way, was living in perfection. He was living in the place that God created. He had this relationship with God that you and I will never experience on this side of eternity. He was free to name and, I guess, play with all the animals, which has to be cool, right? I mean, he's living in perfection. He has a connection with God that is perfect, and yet God sees him and says, it's not enough. It's not enough. He needs, and I like the word here, this helper that's suitable for him. If you were here uh, three weeks ago when Adam kicked off this series, he used this verse that it's not good for us to be alone. And as followers of Jesus, if that's you, there's a larger purpose for this in this room. There's a larger purpose for us coming together like this or in smaller groups during the week or simply just in your close-knit relationships that you have with other people. And there are certain things that God desires in relationships. And when I'm talking about relationships here, I'm talking about spiritual relationships. Relationships that you have with other followers of Christ or people who are even uh, friends of yours that might even be seeking God. And again, a little repeat, as last week we talked about how a part of community, just a piece of it, a part of what coming together is and what it does is it helps us through times when faith is not easy because faith is not easy. And God is very serious about His people coming together for that very reason, just to be around each other. And so today, I want to talk about verse 24. And uh, let's read it together. It says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Oh, you're reading it with me. Okay, cool. Let's do that again. We'll all read it this time. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Now, it's pretty straight on. Let's, this is what the writer is saying. Let's get in each other's faces and push and push and push towards love and good deeds. That's easy, right? The words here are interesting. The word consider is the word kataneo. And it, it means this like, it's, it's to perceive, to understand. It's a slow process. On the screen it says it's not to notice, but it's to know fully. And so when we say, when we read the verse and it says, let us consider how we do this, it's not Twitter. It's a deep-rooted process of thinking and listening. It implies that you really know the person. The same word is used in James chapter 1 where James is talking about uh, faith and deeds. Don't, he says, don't merely listen to the word, but do what the word says. And then he gives this example of someone who, he says, if you don't do what the word says, you're like someone who looks in the mirror and considers what he sees 
and then walks away and forgot what he saw. It's the same word. And it makes that little example even larger because it's like you sat there and stared at yourself for eight hours. How did you forget what you saw? And so this word consider, kataneo, means to look deeply into the lives of your friends and think deeply about them. We don't just say, go do this and go do that, and we spur them on towards wherever to get them out of our face, but we think deeply. It's saying, I'll get, I'll get back with you on that. Let me think about that. Let me think and pray hard about that. It's a slow and patient process. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 7. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Have you heard this before? This is about judge, being judgmental, but it's also about how we tend to make rash judgments and we say things in a rash manner that we're not even considering who we are but we see something wrong with our friend or brother and we call the shots we make unconscious and rash decisions about people but in our text today the writer is saying slowly consider think deeply about who they are and then he says to spur one another on the greek word is this i don't really know how to say it uh so there but it means to provoke, to push, to what? To irritate. Does anybody have any irritating friends? <laughs> okay. It's kind of an ingredient that God wants in your relationships. There has to be an element of irritation. There has to be an element of, man, when this person gives me advice, I don't like it. I don't want to hear it. And sometimes it feels irritating to be pushed, even if it's a good good thing. This is a really low-level example, but uh, I write these sermons with a friend in another city. We talk. We have scheduled phone appointments during the week, and we trade a lot of emails, and sometimes I have an idea, right? Uh, I've learned never to, like, go with an idea that comes at three in the morning, but sometimes I have an idea, and I'll text him, and I'll say, I have an idea, and he'll call back, and it's, and he'll say, what do you got? Tell me what you have, and I'll start like just for 10 minutes just saying this and that. We could go here and there and this word and that kind of thing and this other scripture and I'll finish my little pitch and then uh, he'll say, it'll be quiet and then he'll say, I think that's pretty dumb. <laughs> you know, and I've got 18 pages of like cool drawings and notes and I'm going, it's dumb? And he says, no, no, listen to what I'm saying. And then he starts to redirect. Say, no, maybe it's this. I like what you said here, but it's not so much that, but it's more this direction and let's make sure we're true to the text and what you said isn't really true to the text so let's just sort of go here and it's just this sort of relationship where at times it's irritating and I've had people in my life that I still do but that are much much uh, I just set that up grammatically wrong they're more mature than me in their faith and I come to them with an issue or a question or whatever, and they come back with advice that they've considered, and I don't like it. It's hard, it's hard to listen to. It's irritating. But sometimes, even if it's a good thing, it feels irritating to be pushed. But look at what the writer says we push people towards. Love. The word is agape. There are four words that the Greeks use to describe love. They're here for you on the screen. Storge is this sort of tribal love. I don't necessarily like you that much, but I will protect you because you're a part of my tribe. This is, I hate my brother, but I'll beat up anybody who touches my brother. That kind of love. A committed, without emotion sort of love. 
Phileo, we get the word Philadelphia, brotherly love from that. This is sort of friendly friendship. This guy's a nice person. He seems to love everybody. There's that kind of love. And eros, that's another sermon. That's a dirty word, all right? But agape, agape is the highest form and the most difficult form of love because it's the kind of love that's not based on performance but it's a love that sees through the faults of you and me and it sees instead the worth that God has placed in every person, right? It's a love without condition. It's a love without gain. It's essentially a love without vision, without eyes. And on the screen you can see that the early Christians, they really hijacked this word and they used it to describe the the kind of love that God has for you and for me and the kind of love that we are to have towards one another. C.S. Lewis said it this way, a selfless love, a love that's passionately committed to the well-being of the other. And so the writer is telling me to push my friends towards this kind of love for both God and for others and the other way around. So we push, we irritate, we spur on our friends towards that. That's what we do. And then he says good deeds. And it's quite simple. I mean, it's just great things. You're doing great things for each other. They're beautiful, genuine, useful, workable things. And when you see the phrase good deeds paired with love, especially the word agape, which is the highest form of love, when they're paired together, you can pretty much bet your life that this is about serving people out of your love for God. This is about because of your love for God, you serve and do good things for your neighbor. But in this passage, it's kind of going a different direction or the opposite direction. It's us pushing people towards that. And so this is a pretty big ingredient to relationships. And overall, this verse is about what to do when we settle. Like when we find our friends settling in their faith, sort of becoming inactive, this is what uh, the writer is getting at. Look at this verse on the screen. Paul says to the Thessalonians, he says, we urge you, brothers, warn those who are what? Idle. What do you do when you're idle? Exactly. But when you become idle, and church is full of idle people, they start gossiping and talking and comparing and judging and just idleness. But it says, and warn those who are idle. Go encourage the timid. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. In other words, get back in the game of good deeds. Get back in the game of what you're here for. And so the challenge in this verse is pretty easy to understand. We're supposed to push others towards love and good deeds. That's it. Does that make sense? Nothing revolutionary. But the deeper dimension to this verse is simply that this is what it looks like and feels like and what it means to be a disciple. And the word for disciple is the word talmid. And the word talmid, disciple, is the primary word that the New Testament uses to describe a follower of Christ. The word Christian is used three times and it's derogatory. When people talked about those who were following Jesus, they were disciples, Talmud. They were also known as people of the way because Jesus said, I am the way and the life. And so 
but disciple is the primary word used to describe someone who has committed their life to Christ. And discipleship, by the way, just as a form, happens in groups. And so when you become a Christian, when you say, that's what I'm going to do. I mean, we had a baptism here last week. We've had several in that thing over there over the last few months. When people say, I'm giving my life to the ways of Jesus, they become a disciple. And discipleship as a form always happens in groups. And notice what's on the screen. Being a disciple always involves having someone in your life who is ahead of you spiritually. Does that make sense? They've been on the journey with God longer than you, right? You don't want your sole um, support system to be people who are behind you. You need people behind you, and I'll explain that in a moment, but to be a disciple means that someone is in front of you, and they are speaking intentionally into your life, and they're acting as a motivator and an influencer of your life. One historian said it this way, a student wants to know what the teacher knows, but a disciple wants to be who the teacher is. That's different. Sitting in here and learning and filling our heads up with knowledge about the scriptures is good. It's healthy. It's what we should do, but it's not the same as being a disciple. A disciple is someone who wants to be like Jesus. I know I've told the story in here before of just modern day rabbis in Palestine would run into stories of rabbis going into the bathroom and then like eight little guys going in right after him because they want to see everything that their rabbi does. And it's awkward, but it's just sort of this like, how does he wash his hands? What does he do with his hat? Where does he hang his coat? Because I want to be like that. And so the disciple, the follower of Jesus, always again involves someone in your life who is ahead of you spiritually, and speaking change into your life, unsettling you a bit. Just like the verse says, let us consider how we do this, how we push people. We continue to reroute maybe their idleness or their faith has gone inactive, or maybe they're just all about learning and they're not doing. And so the disciple is someone who's being pushed. Jesus did this on occasion. I want to show you a few stories uh, on the screen. First one says, as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. This is about the feeding of the 5,000. And so the disciples' idea was, this is not our problem. Send them home, Jesus. And so Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, Jesus, there's so many examples of this, but here's Jesus with his own disciples rerouting their thought process as their teacher, as their Lord, ultimately as their Savior, and they being the disciples, they're learning from Jesus the correct way to move through life. And so in this story, Jesus says, no, 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 your thinking is wrong. You must go this direction. You need somebody in your life that you go to and you say, this is what we need to do. And they say, no, it's this way. This is what God desires. This is what the scriptures say. You're off just a little bit. Matthew 19, great story. Then the little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them, sort of yelling at the parents. But remember that in the days of Jesus, the lowest, some of the lowest class levels in culture were slaves, women, and children. 
And so here come children running to Jesus, and the disciples culturally push them away, rebuking the parents, saying, get the kids away. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. So he's, again, rerouting their thinking. Next slide. This is Jesus speaking to the religious leaders of the day. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So he says to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, he says, you're tithing, but you're not merciful or just or faithful. And then he says, You should have practiced the latter, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, without neglecting the former. Not taking away the tithe, but adding to their understanding of what it means to love and to worship God. So their understanding was, we give and we're good. But Jesus comes into their life and gets in their face and pushes them towards love and good deeds. Look at what Paul said to the Ephesians. He who has been stealing must steal no longer but must work, doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. What what do you steal with? Your hands. Now, Paul begins and he says, tell those who are stealing not to steal anymore. I just feel like a robot with this arm. Sorry, I'm frustrated. (laughs) Um, I mean, many times at night I felt like Luke in The Empire Strikes Back. (laughs) I mean, when you can't sleep, you're just doing all sorts of fun things. When we think of religion, we think prohibition. No, that's what we think. Church, Bible, God, Jesus, scriptures, Sunday school class, small groups, it's all about the list of things you can't do. And there is a list. We're not going to be false about that. There are things that God says you don't need to do those things, and this is one of them. But we often think that it stops at prohibition. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. But watch what Paul does. He who has been stealing They don't need to do that anymore, but instead they need to work with the same hands that they would steal with so that they may have something to share with those in need, right? Who steals? People in need. So here's someone who might be in need and need what they have stolen, but Paul is saying, stop doing that and work. You're obviously resourceful. I mean, if you can get inside of a car in 30 seconds, you've got some talent. So reroute what you're doing with your hands, Paul says, so that you can share with someone who is in need. It's just a rerouting of their understanding of life. And then he says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. But again, take the same tongue, the same mouth, and reverse it and build others up according to their needs. Paul says this in Romans 12, 21. Don't be overcome with evil, which means don't be overwhelmed with that but overcome evil with what? Good. It's not our inclination. Our inclination is to fight back, to overcome evil with more or more powerful evil. But Paul says, this is what you do. Don't be overwhelmed by what's happening in your world, but overcome it with good. And discipleship at times 
is an unsettled life. God is always moving us, shaping us, growing us in our faith and trust and action and change. Famous story from Genesis on the screen. Terah took his son Abram, this is the future Abraham, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, his daughter-in-law Sarah, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they what? They settled there. Next verse is awesome. The Lord God said to Abram, leave. And thus begins this pattern of when people settle, God says, leave. Get up, and in this case, it's leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go somewhere else. I'll guide you, but you're going to go somewhere else. And in these days, history just kept repeating itself. And it had to do with where you lived and the people in your life and your family. But God says, let's uproot that. Let's unsettle that. Let's erase this loop that keeps circling in your life, whatever pattern that is. Let's unsettle that cadence and let's leave. Let's go somewhere else. And so being a disciple, a follower of Jesus... Again, if that's you, it's about this verse in Hebrews 10, 24, having people in your life that are pushing you, they're getting in your life, they're considering deeply, they care for you, and they're spurring you on towards a greater love for God and greater action with your neighbor. And so the obvious questions are, as we close, do you have someone like that in your life? And I don't want to keep repeating myself, but it, I guess that's what I have to do to, to make sure you don't leave without hearing this a few more times, but is, is there someone in your life that is ahead of you spiritually who is speaking into you and motivating or pushing you towards greater love for both God and others? And, we haven't talked about this yet, are there people behind you that you are that person for them? It goes both ways because we're all behind somebody and ahead of some others. Understand? My favorite kind of churches are the ones that get slightly out of control because someone comes in, this guy comes in, he hasn't been to church in 30 years, right? He comes into the building and he has a rough past, he has a rough group of friends, um, but his heart is radically changed by the message of Jesus. And so he comes for a week, he comes back the next week, he's been two Sundays, and then he goes back to his friends, and he starts bringing them. And all of a sudden you have a whole row of these people. Now, the guy that brought them, he's only two Sundays ahead of them, right? He's not spiritually mature, he still has issues, he still has problems, he's not, he, he couldn't find Genesis, if we put the page number on the screen, but he's two Sundays ahead of his friends, and he grabs them by the leather vest and brings them in right? It's the woman at the well. Jesus speaks to the woman at the well. She's had all these marriages, and the guy she's living with is not even her husband, and Jesus sort of like reads her mail and freaks her out and changes her life, and she, the first thing she does is she goes back to her town and says to her friends and the people who probably don't like her, you have got to come and see this person who knew everything about me. Now, is she a saint? No. She still has a lot of issues, a lot of problems, a lot of things that she needs to work through, maybe years of ancient therapy, but she still 
goes to some of her friends and says, you need to come and see who this person is, this Jesus. All of us have people behind us, all of us. But I think where we fail the most is we fail to put someone in front of us. And I wasn't able to say it that way last service. First service was rough. But we fail to put someone in front of us. We like to be in front, I think. And we don't like to be behind, to be led, to be pushed. But the Scriptures call us to make sure someone is in front of us spiritually and they're pushing us. Now for some of you, your whole Christian experience happens in this room. And I know for many people, that's where it begins. You come, you sit, you listen to someone like me, and you leave. And for you, I'm that person for you. I don't know your name. You've been coming for months, years. We've never talked. But you sit, and you take notes, and you read, and you leave every single Sunday, and you feel as though you've grown, you're learning, and so on, and all of that's true. And for you, it's just me or whoever's up here. But the challenge for you is that someone needs to be having conversations with you that's ahead of you. Because faith gets molded best when you're face-to-face and talking. Some of you are in one of our many connect groups. I think there's like 10 or 12 groups starting up in September around the city. This, if you're a part of one of those groups, this, verse 24, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. This is one of the base reasons for coming together. The materials that we give the leaders, the questions that you go through, those are really secondary. They're great. We learn. We grow. We, our faith is renewed. But we ultimately are together to take what we're learning and to say, okay, what does that do for us? How do we use that? How do we go and do what we've just learned? So if you're in a group, that's one of the base reasons for being there. So freak your leader out and spill the story. This is where I am. This is where my doubts are. This is where I'm struggling. I need help here. I need someone to push me in the right direction. And if you're a leader and that group is small, this is your main job. You're the person who, whether you like it or not, pushes others, your group, towards love and good deeds. I try to during the week, just in closing a couple stories here, I try to during the week Uh, as best I can, set up appointments with many of you, but just certain people that uh, I can just hang out with and and talk with and all sorts of things like that. Friday mornings have become sort of a favorite spot. Um, I put my son on the bus at like 7.14. That's what it says on the website, but it's really whenever she gets there. Put him on the bus, and then I run down the a few blocks down to the uh, Brookhaven Starbucks, and all the guys from my small group that meet in our home are there. And we have coffee for about an hour. Sometimes we just talk about um, or make fun of the, um, the SUVs that are trying to park in the parking lot to get coffee, and how the line through the drive-thru is actually sort of this spiral, uh, I don't know what it is, but it's just, we have a good time sitting on the porch pointing and laughing and ducking and all sorts of things. Uh, But sometimes we talk about deeper things. Sometimes we recap what we just did. I mean, we were in session back in the school season with small groups. I mean, we would sit together and say, yeah, about that thing we talked about. Or 
Maybe it was something in here that happened, but we just begin to converse and just talk and maybe answer questions. We've given books back and forth, you know, like, oh, I've got a book that you should read about this, and the next time we see each other, we'll pass those on. But it's just, it's a fun relational connection, and it's with people that are in my small group anyway. And it's just the guys. And it's not a fantastic story or an illustration, but it's just, I'm just trying to show you that this is what you need to do. This is what God has called us to do, is to get together and to just have these conversations. On Thursdays, I get on the train at 5.45 in the morning. I go all the way to Decatur, and I meet my friend Adam over here for coffee at Java Monkey. Thank you very much. And uh, we're always the first ones in. And uh, we, sometimes we just talk about missions. He's over our missions here. We just talk about missions, and then sometimes we just talk about the weather, and then sometimes we talk about deeper things. And it's always just maybe with the question, how are you doing? How are things going? And if you really know the person, you know what that question means. When I started working here, I got a phone call from a coach. Um, See, here again, another frustration. This one can go this way, but this one is this way. (laughs) Sorry. Guaranteed I'm taking a nap when I get home. I was up at 3.30 watching the third loop of SportsCenter because I can't sleep for some reason, and it's just like, who does this? Who's on their couch with coffee at 3 in the morning (laughs) knowing that this is coming? But anyway, it is what it is. But I get this call from a coach for 18 months. He called me once a week for an hour, and he is somebody that is way ahead of me. He's in his 50s. He started a church in Lexington. It's a big place. He probably has this many staff. And so he is way ahead of me. And he would call me once a week, and sometimes we would just talk about personal things. Sometimes we would talk about church things or both. And and I would always have questions, and I would say, what about this or what about that? Or sometimes it was just me being honest with him about uh, struggles and temptations and just sort of things that are going on in my own head and my heart, or maybe just leadership issues or whatever, but he is someone who is so far ahead of me, not just in age, but in experience and in faith, that through the phone, he would speak into me, and he would basically do what this verse says. He would think, consider, and push. And so, for the last time, let us consider how we, that's us, may spur one another on, that's us, towards love and good deeds. And I love this verse where Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. It sounds arrogant, but it's not. Because everybody has this person in their life, you say, if they're a person of faith, you say, man, if I could just be like them in my faith, right? We all have these people. We, maybe it's a relative, a parent, a, a friend, a co-worker, an employer, employee, someone here, someone in your connect group. We all have these people in our life that we look at and we say, they're about as close to Christ as I've ever seen in a person. And if I could just be like them, I would be further along in my journey. And that's the challenge of discipleship is to put someone in front, you've got to put someone in front of you that you look at and say, I want to be like that when it comes to prayer. I want to be like that when it comes to giving. I want to be like that when it comes to my marriage. I want to be like that when it comes to uh, my devotional life. I want to be like that. You just fill in the blank. We all need to push someone in front of us 
and have this intentional relationship with them where they are the example for us and they are speaking into your life. And then it just carries on. You do that for somebody else and that person does that for somebody else. One of the trademarks of discipleship as a form back in the first century was that disciples, rabbis would tell their disciples to go and make more disciples. And so Jesus closes his earthly ministry with his own disciples and says in Matthew 28, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations so it just keeps on going and going and going. Now you go and get in front of somebody and then you tell them to go and get in front of somebody. And so this verse, although it's short, although it's obvious, it's okay, great, we tell people to go do good things and love God, but I think that that word consider makes it so much more difficult because this is a deeply rooted, patient process of being with someone and considering how that happens. And it's, again, it's not just a quick, well, there you go, get out of my hair. It's a deeply rooted relationship of irritation towards love and good deeds. We'll stand and pray and uh, we'll sing. Please do not leave because I have one thing that I want to share with you uh, before you leave, so let's stay together. God, thank you so much for today. And um, My guess is um, there are people in the room that that just don't have anybody that's speaking into them, and that is, um, that's what we want in this place. We want people putting people in front of them and saying, speak to me, give me wisdom, give me encouragement, push me towards God, push me closer to God, push me closer to the things He wants me to do. And so God, would you just bless uh, our season as we go into connect groups and uh, starting in a few weeks, and just would you just bless those circles of people, and would you just give us the strength to not only lead, but to want to be led, and to be humble, and to be uh, attentive to the wisdom of people who are ahead of us spiritually. And God, I'm sure there are people in this room that have no connections whatsoever with any of those kinds of people, and my heart, uh, my heart is that they find someone who can uh, be that person for them so that they're growing and that their faith is being worked out in discussion and conversation and debate and prayer. And uh, as a church father, just give us the strength to follow you, to trust you, and to be your disciples uh, as we follow you. In your name that we pray, and everyone said, amen. Stay